Matthew chapter 16, as we continue in this series, Loving Your Neighbor IRL. I remember the exact moment when I realized that it was time for us to start having children, my wife and I, Carrie. It was when we'd been married four years. I had just gotten out of seminary. I'd just taken my first church. It was actually the church I grew up in. I was the pastor of a church for the first time in my life, had a full-time ministry job. And the, so since it's the church I grew up in, I knew most of the people there. Okay, let's be honest. I knew everybody there. One of them was a guy about my age, and I'm having a conversation with him. And he says, you know, Jeff, you just need to have a kid. Now, he and his wife had had a baby about a year before, and he said, it's the best thing ever. I mean, having a kid will change your life. You just need to do it. And, and this was a real man's man, a guy who, you know, hunting, fishing, country boy, salt of the earth kind of guy. And to hear him waxing on and on about the glories of having a baby made me think, well, gosh, if he can do it, then I can. And as I said, we were, I was out of school. There's no, nothing stopping us. And so I went home that day and I said, Gary, it's time. Let's, let's get this show on the road, so to speak. And uh, well, fast forward about a year. And my mind had definitely changed <laughs> because the baby had arrived. And, and I realized something terrible, and that was I just didn't feel like I was cut out to be a dad. A bad time to realize it, right? I, I, I realized I didn't enjoy this at all. Something very, very deeply was wrong with me or with the child or with both because it just wasn't working. And, and I really questioned myself, like, is there some problem with me internally? Is there, is there something about me that just doesn't warm to this idea of having a baby in, in the house? And I, I, I remember talking to people and saying, you know, I, this is kind of hard for me, but I imagine it's going to get easier as she gets older. Yeah, that's what they did. They laughed and they were like, yeah, wait till she's a toddler. Wait till she's a teenager. Um, and, and I remember talking to my mom and telling her the whole thing saying, you know, I remember talking to him and he said it was great. And here I am now I'm a dad and it's, it's not really that great. And, and she said, yeah, but he just goes home from work and holds that baby for 20 minutes and then gives him back. I don't know if she was just trying to make me feel better or not, but it didn't. The answer to my dilemma was actually found in this passage we're gonna look at this morning. And this is one of the foundational passages in all the Bible, Matthew 16, 24 through 26. If you've been a Christian for much time at all or been in church or read the scriptures, you know this passage, but I hope today you're gonna to know it better than you ever have before. And you're gonna see how it changes our lives, how if you learn this and apply it, then you will begin to experience the abundant life that Jesus talked about. Then you will begin to understand what it really means to follow him, not just be religious, not just be a Christian, but actually follow the, the Jesus who said, follow me. He writes, or he says in verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Now, again, you've probably heard that, but there are three things that I think help us understand it better. And the first is context matters. You need to keep in mind, and this is true of so much of Scripture. We read the Bible, we tend to read the Bible a verse at a time. We get little devotional books and they'll have a little verse of Scripture or a verse on a coffee cup, and that's how we learn the Bible. And that's fine. But in order to really understand it, you need to know what was happening in that world when that person so, said those words. 
So what was happening to Jesus at this moment? Jesus had just sat down with his disciples and asked them the question, who do the people say that I am? And his disciples said, well, you know, they think you're Elijah or John the Baptist or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. You're basically a prophet. And he said, okay, but who do you say that I am? And listen, there's no more important question than that. In fact, that, let me put it this way. That is the question every human being ultimately is going to have to answer. Who do you say Jesus is? And that's the question that will determine each person's destiny, not just in heaven or in hell, but on earth. Who do you say that I am? And guess who spoke up first? If you know the Bible, you know the answer to this. Peter. He was always the first one to speak. But this time he got the answer right. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, absolutely, Peter. You didn't figure that out on your own. Heaven the Lord, the God of creation gave you that revelation. That's how you know this. And then he said, upon this rock, remember the name Peter meant rock. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that's a very controversial verse. I mean, that divide, that's one of the things that divides Protestant Christians from Catholic Christians. But what both sides of that argument can agree on is that Jesus was affirming the fact that Peter just called him divine. You are the son of the living God. You're more than a man. And then Jesus did an unusual thing, something you would never expect. Verse 20, he says, then, it's, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Why? I mean, this, the, the, the mystery of history, and I didn't mean to rhyme, but the mystery of all humanity has finally been revealed since the beginning of creation, people have said, when is God going to come back and fix what we've broken? When is God going to show up and make things right? Well, Peter finally figured it out. God is here sitting in our midst. And yet Jesus wants him to keep it a secret. Why? Because he knew that the word Christ, the word Messiah, those are both the same word in different languages. He knew those were politically charged words. That when someone said Messiah, when someone said, hey, I met a man today who might be the Christ, immediately a crowd would form because that's the, that's the kind of political environment they were in in Judaism at the time. They were looking for the Messiah. They were desperate for him to come. And they thought that meant that a revolution was about to begin. They would pick up arms. They would take up uh, their spears and their swords or they would turn their plowshares into swords if they had to, but they would be ready to fight because they thought when Messiah showed up, that meant the revolution started and the, the Romans would be overthrown and all the enemies of the Jews would be put under their feet killed or captured or made into slaves, and they would finally be on top. And Jesus didn't want that to happen. That wasn't his plan. He didn't want all this idle talk to lead to unnecessary bloodshed. And he certainly didn't want anything to distract from his mission in life, which was to save humanity by offering himself in sacrifice for our sin. And you might say, well, why didn't he just explain all that to the disciples so they could explain it to the world because they weren't ready yet. And he knew that. In fact, that's what he goes on to do right after that. He says, listen, I am about to be arrested. You're going to see it happen. I'm going to be betrayed by one of you. I'm going to be handed over to the rulers of our people. They will hand me over to the Romans. I'll be tortured. I'll be crucified. I am not long for this world. Can you imagine what a shock that was to the disciples? They left behind everything three years earlier to follow Jesus because they thought he was going to sit on a throne and they were going to be his right-hand men. 
his court advisors. And now he's saying, no, I'm actually going to be treated like a criminal and killed. And so Peter steps up and says, Jesus, you're talking nonsense. I don't know what's wrong with you, but you need to snap out of it because you're not going to die. And you know what Jesus says to him at that point, right? He says, get behind me, Satan. And y'all, if you read the Gospels, you see that although Jesus was definitely the kindest, most gracious, most loving person who ever lived, he could also say some words that stung, right? He wasn't, he wasn't mealy-mouthed or wishy-washy. If you needed to hear the hard truth, he would kick you in the rear and slap you in the teeth if that's what it took to get the truth across to you. And he said some really, really harsh things, but he never said a single thing to a single Pharisee that was more harsh than what he said to Peter at that very moment. Now, why? Peter was, in many ways, his best friend on earth. Why would he say something so hurtful? Because he recognized in Peter's words the same temptation he had heard from the devil three years earlier when he was tempted in the desert. The devil had said, bow down before me and I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. Take the easy way out, Jesus. You don't have to, you don't have to lay down your life for these people. What he was really offering Jesus, although the devil didn't know about the cross, I think, he was saying, take the crown without the cross. Rule without suffering. And Peter, that's what he wanted. And Jesus, Jesus embarrassed him in front of all his friends because he knew that's what they thought too. He had to make an example of Peter at that point because they all knew that if Jesus ruled, they got to rule. And that's what they wanted. They wanted Jesus to take the easy way because they wanted the easy way. Who wouldn't? If Jesus ruled, they would rule. But if Jesus suffered, they would suffer. And that's when he comes to this teaching we just read. If you follow me, it means it means struggle. It means sacrifice. It means laying down your life. I know, I know the teaching of Scripture is anybody can be saved. It's grace. It's free of charge. But it's costly to follow. And Jesus makes that clear up front. That's the context of what he said. Now, the second thing we need to know is don't soften the word cross. And the reason I say that is because here's what we do with this teaching. Here's what most people know of this teaching in Scripture. They're talking about their spouse and rolling their eyes, or they're talking about their car that won't start, or they're talking about their boss and, and what a jerk he is, or they're talking about this knee that won't quit hurting, or whatever the case may be, and they'll complain a while, and then they'll kind of sigh and say, well, I guess that's just the cross I have to bear. Now, don't raise your hand, but you've heard people say that, right? You've probably said that. Stop it. That is not what Jesus meant. And his disciples would have known that. I guarantee you when Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me, not a single one of them thought to themselves, oh, he's talking about that, that donkey at home that's got a lame foot and that's my cross that I have. No, he's talking about my mother-in-law. No, none of them thought that. You know why? Because they'd seen crucifixion. Thank God in heaven, none of us has ever seen a human being crucified in real life. But these men had, because Rome made sure that they saw it. Rome made sure that every once in a while, when you were traveling from Nazareth to Cana for work, or you were traveling from Nazareth to Jerusalem for the festival, or you were traveling from Capernaum to Bethsaida because that's where your wife's parents lived, you know, every once in a while as you're traveling along the road, you would come across some crosses and men nailed to them. 
And you'd try not to look, but just human nature being what it was, you'd have to look as you passed by and you'd see those men and you wouldn't know how long they'd been there. They looked dead, but you saw from their, from their chests moving up and down, they were still alive, just in too much pain to acknowledge you in any way. And then you would know, you would know, if I ever run afoul of Rome, this is what happens to me. I better follow the straight and narrow. I better not, I better not get out of line. So when Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. They instantly knew what he was saying. They were, he was saying, you, you signed on to follow me. You were signing on to a suicide mission. Because if my journey ends on a cross, your journey will end on a cross of its own. Maybe not literally, although in some cases, we believe Peter was probably crucified. Jesus was saying, this is, this is a journey that does not lead to the, to the fulfilling of all your earthly dreams. This is, a, this is a journey that leads to sacrifice, that leads to suffering. It leads to you laying down your life. Now, I tell you this story at least once a year because it's one of my favorites. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran clergyman in Germany back in the 30s and 40s. Young man, very, very gifted. He wrote a book uh, in the late 30s called Nachfolge. That's in German. I don't know if I pronounced it correctly. It means following. The English translation is The Cost of Discipleship. If you want to go on christianbook.com or Amazon and buy it, that's what you would find it under, The Cost of Discipleship. If you ever want a book to work you over in a spiritual sense, this is it. He wrote this book because he was disgusted with what had become of German Christianity. You may be aware of what was happening in history at that time. A man named Adolf Hitler was the leader of that nation. Bonhoeffer was disgusted by the way many German Christians had just unapologetically accepted him. Not just voted, not just obeyed, but actually believed he was good for the country. They just chose to ignore what was happening to the Jews. They chose to ignore the fact that he had uh, completely taken away all democratic norms and made himself a, a, a dictator for life. They ignored the fact that he was warping and distorting Christianity into something that it was not, a religion that emphasized strength and domination. He went to America during this time to study, hoping that he would see real Christianity in this country. But unfortunately, in the, in the churches he visited in New York City and in the surrounding area, he saw that the American churches had gone the opposite direction of German. The German Christians had embraced fascism on the right. The American Christians seemed to go towards spiritual and theological liberalism on the left. And they preached watered down messages that had nothing to do with scripture or the gospel. One exception, the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, a black Baptist church. He actually heard the true gospel being preached. Otherwise, nothing but drivel. He went home and knew he had to do something. He wrote this book where he wrote about a concept he called cheap grace. It sounds good, but it's not the true gospel. Here's what he said. He wrote, Forgiveness, cheap grace is repentance, forgiveness without repentance. It's grace without discipleship. It's grace without the cross. It's grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. His most famous line from the book is based on this passage we're looking at today. He said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Doesn't sound much like the messages you hear in churches today, does it? They try to make Christianity seem easy. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now I can testify to something. It doesn't take a whole lot of courage to stand behind the pulpit and say something like that. It doesn't take a whole lot of courage to sit at a desk and write something like that. It takes a lot of courage to actually do it. 
Bonhoeffer had an opportunity in the late 30s to actually leave Germany. Some friends were worried about him because he was so outspoken and the Nazis were already starting to look at him critically. And so they arranged for him to have a teaching position in America at a seminary here. And they said, go, this is a great opportunity for you to stay safe and serve the Lord. And he deeply considered it, but in the end said, would Jesus leave his people when they were under tyranny? No, I must stay. He started an outlaw seminary where he would teach young men and women who felt called to the ministry, this is how you preach the actual gospel. This is how you lead people to discipleship. He was part of an organization called the Confessing Church, that small group of German Christians who actually got together and publicly spoke out against the government. And ultimately, he chose to, he, he, became to, he began to believe that violence was necessary. He became, he became part of the von Stauffenberg plot to assassinate the Fuhrer that ultimately failed and he was found out and arrested and placed in a concentration camp where he died, executed by hanging two weeks before the camp was liberated. Now, you've heard that story before if you've been in this church enough, because I tell it often, but here's what I don't want you to do with that story. I don't want you to hear it and go, man, what a superstar for Jesus. What a, what a super Christian. What a, what a man of God. I wish I could be like that. Don't say that. Because Jesus would look at that story and say, no, that's a disciple. That's what disciples do. In Jesus' mind, there aren't A team and B team Christians. There's not varsity and JV. If you want to follow Jesus, you're saying, I'm ready to give my life. That's what he meant when he said, take up your cross and follow me. Now here comes the crucial part, number three. This is what we need to understand if we want to really apply this teaching to our lives. We need to understand what our soul is. Because when Jesus says the word soul, most of us have this idea of soul as being the part of us that's not physical. So in the cartoons, when the little cartoon uh, cat is chasing after the cartoon bird and gets run over by a bus, we see the little ghostly cat emerge from the body of the cat that's just been run over and it's got little wings on its back and a halo and it floats up to heaven and we go, oh, okay, that's, you know, that's Sylvester's soul. Okay, Generation Z, you can Google it, G Sylvester and Tweety, it's an old cartoon. But anyway, there's even a, for, for better reference, Pixar has a movie out now called Soul about the fact that your soul is the disembodied part of you. Okay, you want to hear a corny preacher joke, do you? Are you ready for this? Okay, so preacher is preaching his first funeral ever. He decides that he really wants to emphasize the importance of uh, the, the life after this one. So he opens the funeral by saying, friends, you see the body of Jack in front of you? That's not actually Jack. That is just a shell. The actual nut has already departed. So preacher jokes are the worst, but you get the point. And, and that's the way we think, but that's not biblical. When the Bible uses the word soul, it doesn't refer to the disembodied part of us. It refers to all of us. Your body is just the part of you we can see. Your soul is who you are. Your soul is you. Let me show you why that's important. We read Jesus' teaching here where he says, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it and, and you'll forfeit your soul. And here's what we think that means. We think that means, well, if I'm in a position like Bonhoeffer, I better give my life. Otherwise, I'm going to hell. If I was one of those first Christians and the Romans came and they said, we'll throw you to the lions unless you renounce Jesus, I better, I better go to the lions. Otherwise, I lose my salvation. That's what we think. 
And we find that comforting in a weird way. You know why? Because deep down inside, most of us are pretty sure we'll never have to face that choice. We live in America. Nobody's faced that kind of choice in the United States since before this country was a country. So we feel pretty safe saying, yeah, I'd say I'd stand up for Jesus if it meant my life. Because we, deep down inside, we think it's never going to come to that. The truth is, that's not what Jesus meant. You ever thought about the fact that one of Jesus' own disciples renounced him on pain of martyrdom, Peter, and Jesus took him back with no strings attached? That's not what Jesus is talking about. The word soul, as I said earlier, refers to all of us. Actually, this might surprise you. The word soul and the word life, same word in Greek. When, John, or when Matthew says that Jesus said, uh, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. Don't gain the whole world and lose your soul. Those are the same two words. Don't gain the whole world and lose your life. So what am I saying? What is Jesus saying? I believe what he was saying was, you're born in such a way that you want life to be all about you. Don't deny it. You probably don't remember this, but you know the first word you learned? It wasn't dada, it was mine. That's who we are. We go through the rest of life saying mine, mine, and then no, no. We're selfish by nature. And I know you would say, yeah, but I do good deeds. I do too. But you know, 95% at least of the good deeds I do are for selfish reasons. I want to make myself look good. I want to get rid of some guilt. I read this story some years ago. You know that the Butterball Turkey Company has a hotline every year in November for people who are roasting their turkeys for Thanksgiving. And they got a phone call the week before Thanksgiving. A woman said, hey, we have this stand-up freezer, and last week we defrosted it, and we found this turkey down in the bottom encased in ice like some Neolithic woolly mammoth. And I, I was wondering if we could serve it to our family. And the, the hotline lady said, well, how long has it been there? And she said, I don't know, but it's been at least 10 years since we defrosted our freezer. So, and the woman said, well, you know, it probably won't hurt anybody, but it's been, if it's been in the ice for 10 years, it's going to be covered in freezer burn. It's not going to taste any good at all. And so the woman on the other end of the line said, oh, well, I guess I'll just donate it to my church then. Because that's who we are. We give God our leftovers and then we feel righteous about it. That's the way we're born. We love others with what we have left over. But Jesus says, if you want to follow me, it means doing the opposite of that. If you want to follow me, it means giving up what you think you can't replace and trusting that I'm going to replace it with something better. It means living a life that's not about you and fulfilling all your dreams in spite of what popular preaching today says. The point of Christianity is not to give you the life you've always wanted. It's to give you a life based on Jesus Christ, loving others. And that life, Jesus says, will fulfill you in ways that that other life that you secretly desire, the one that, that this culture preaches to you day after day that you need, it doesn't fulfill. That's what Jesus is telling us. And so in order to experience that, in order to really learn to love, and that's what this is all about. We're in a series about how to love your neighbor in real life. You have to learn to, let your, to, to set your life down, to die to yourself. Well, what does that really mean? Well, that's when we come back to me as a new father. Because me as a new father just 
discovered something that was deeply disillusioning and disappointing, and that was I wasn't good at loving. I thought I was, because I'm a nice guy. I've always been a nice kid, and I, I thought being nice meant being a loving person, but it doesn't. Nice just means you want other people to like you. Loving means something different. I grew up in a family where I felt love all the time. My parents were, were, were there for me. They, they went to every ball game. They went to every band concert and recital and play. And they, they were proud of me. They made me feel good. I felt loved. I had grandparents that did the same, aunts and uncles. Even most of the teachers I had growing up, I knew that that woman, that man genuinely cares about me. He's not just trying to teach me a subject. They actually think I'm special, think I'm important. I went off to college and I met Carrie, fell in love. Then I experienced a whole different kind of that emotion of love. This idea that this very, very attractive and very intelligent and very interesting person would find me interesting enough to spend a lot of time with, well, that made me feel really important. And then we got married. And then four years later, we're gonna have a, an offspring that's like 50% this person I think is fantastic and 50% me. Well, how could I not love this little being more than any person that's ever lived? How could I not just instantly be drawn to her and, and, and want to just turn off the TV and just gaze upon her, right? I mean, this is what parenting is going to be. And then I discovered, no, no, parenting is sacrifice. Parenting is, okay, what do you need? Oh, you can't tell me what you need. I'm going to have to try for a long time to figure out what you need. And it's going to cost me some things. And fortunately, Fortunately, there was someone else in my house who was better at this. And, and y'all, get gender stereotypes out of your mind because I do not believe that women are naturally better at loving than men, okay? I've seen plenty of evidence to the contrary. I'm just telling you that my wife showed me what love looked like because I would complain about not getting enough sleep. She got way less sleep than I did. I would complain about the fact that, man, our baby doesn't even like me. Well, she had to listen to that baby scream all day when I was at work. I would complain about the fact that my time wasn't my own. Let me tell you about Carrie's personal time during that first year. The personal time she had was when she was nursing, okay? <laughs> and we, we laugh now because we would look we, we look back and we see that the first year that our daughter was alive, Carrie watched one movie the whole year. And the reason she only watched one movie is the only time she had to herself is when she would nurse. And okay, this sounds indelicate, but Kaylee was a slow sucker, okay? <laughs> so it would take a long time. So while this was happening, Carrie would turn on this movie and she was so tired she'd fall asleep. And then she'd wake up and realize, oh, I've missed 20 minutes of the movie, and she'd rewind. By the end of the year, she had finished the movie, okay? If that tells you anything about what her life was like. And yet, in spite of all this, she loved our daughter. She enjoyed this. I'm not saying she never complained. She's human. But that showed me something. That showed me what love was. Now, what did I learn? I learned two things. If you want to love somebody, two things. Number one, it takes daily effort. It takes daily action. See, I grew up Baptist, like many of you. Baptists and other evangelical Christians emphasize decision. 
walk down the aisle while they're playing just as I am or I surrender all. That'll fix everything. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Raise your hand if you want to follow Jesus. I see that hand. Now, everything's going to be great from this day forward. And, and listen, I believe, I believe the day you give your heart to Jesus, you are truly and forever saved. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that's not the end. That's the beginning. And we don't emphasize that enough in Baptist life. Because I couldn't just simply say, okay, God, I repent of being a selfish and, and lazy and entitled American male, and from this day forward, I'm going to sacrifice for my wife and my child. I could do that, but it wouldn't do any good, because the next day, I would still be the same person, and I had to get up and choose to say, okay, it's my turn to, to change the diaper. Or, okay, I'm going to come home a little early because you've had a bad day, and I'm going to hold her while you get a few minutes of, of silence. And so I'd basically just hold her and go, okay, do your worst, right? You know, just yell at me all you want. Or, or you know, okay, I get you want to go into town tonight. I'll stay home with her. You can go, and we'll figure out how to survive the next four hours, right? And I joke, but the truth is, at first, it was intimidating. I didn't want to do any of that. And yet every time I made that decision, here's what happened. I started to feel differently about my child. And what that taught me is, if you want to love somebody who you don't even like, don't get me wrong, I, I, I had affection for our daughter. <laughs> I just knew she didn't like me. But if you want to change the way you feel about somebody, you don't wait for your emotions to change. You start treating them the way a loving person treats them. And that's true of your spouse. If you're in a marriage where you're like, ah, well, you know, we used to be crazy about each other. Those days are gone. Start treating them the way you want, the way you would want to be treated by someone who desperately loves you. And just see if those emotions don't come back. There's somebody you work with that you just can't stand. Don't wait to change your mind about them. Start treating them as if you love them. You'll start to change the way you feel. And most importantly, that person, whoever it is, who over the next 12 months, God's going to lay on your heart and say, this is the person I want you to invest in, to lead to me, to, in, to influence toward me. Start treating them lovingly, whether you feel like it or not. And I never quite got the hang of the parenting thing like Carrie did, but I really began to adore this incredibly beautiful, intelligent, little brown-eyed child that we had. And I'm glad that I did. But you have to take a daily action. You can't wait until you feel like it. Number two, number two, look at the one who loves perfectly. Here's one thing I've learned as a preacher. Fear and guilt are good at short-term motivation, but lousy at long-term transformation. Preachers can scare people into repentance. They can guilt trip people into walking an aisle, but it never lasts. The only thing that works is adoration, it's worship. Don't ever tell me that what you do when you sit here and you sing these songs, if you really mean them, when you pray these prayers, don't tell me that it's useless because if you mean it with your heart, it transforms you. The time you spend in the presence of Jesus changes you. In the same way that me watching my wife love our daughter changed me, to an infinitely greater degree, the perfect one when we spend time with him changes us. We learn from him. We're his apprentices in learning how to love. And so every time we spend time in his presence, every time we worship him, every time we lay down our hearts before him, we become more inspired and more equipped to live the life of love. That, that is when we find ourselves. That is when 
we find our very soul.